I took my design class on a field trip to an open space preserve. And then they all had to go back to campus, basically, because they still had class. And I just stayed. And I walked around for another three hours or so, basically until the sunset. <laughs> it's funny that I should be surprised by this, but I felt so much better than I had in the entire last month. Just like I could think again or I could breathe again. It's like I had half of my brain back. And it wasn't just being alone. It was being alone there. I was like, oh, right. This is not a nice little luxury that sometimes I can get away with. This is something that I need to actually be able to be fully myself. Hello, Lonely Hour listeners. This is Julia Bainbridge. I'm here with the last episode in our little Inner Lives mini-series. As I became interested in understanding how people tend to their private selves in this overstimulated era, four authors, each of whom published works related to this topic, came to my attention. They've been helping me explore this idea of the inner self. Today, we've got Jenny O'Dell, whose voice you heard at the top of this episode. Jenny is an artist, a teacher at Stanford University, and the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. My first question for her was, what is nothing? I think it's kind of anything that is opposed to the kind of default analytical or judgmental mindset that we are asked to be in most of the time. So things like listening, any form of observation, something where you are sort of observing without judgment, things involved with curiosity, wandering through the library is one of my favorite examples. That's sort of my like rainy day activity. If I can't be wandering around outside, then I will be wandering inside in a library. You know, the library that I spend the most time in is the Stanford Library because I work there and it's really, really big. It's also sort of surprisingly confusing. The layout is not intuitive, so it's actually really easy to get lost in, which is not something I mind if I have a lot of time. I like the sort of the difference between idly seeking information in a library, the difference between that and something like Googling something. If you Google something and you don't find the answer, usually on page one, you're sort of done. People tend to Google things and read three or four headlines. Or now sometimes Google even gives you the answer at the top in the little box. And so, you know, like the difference between that and saying, oh, there's this subject that I'm sort of vaguely curious about and I, I have no starting or ending point. I'm just going to see what's there. Even when you look up a title in a catalog, you don't really know what that book is going to be like. You don't even know what size the book is going to be. And so I really like going to some section that I have some loose reason to be interested in and then going outward from there. I found this amazing book called The Colonization of Time. <laughs> and it's such a strange and amazing book. It's definitely like an academic book. It has this horrible cover with a really bad font. It looked like it had not been checked out in a really long time. And this book was life-changingly important for me to read. So I think with something like that, I will just then sit there and like read as much of the book as possible. <laughs> but other times, you know, I might find a book and it's sort of interesting, but not exactly, or oftentimes it's something that's way over my head. And then I'll just look around that book and kind of wander down the shelf until I find something that is closer to what I'm looking for, even though I don't quite know what I'm looking for, but some things grab you and other things don't. I will stay for as long as possible. So it depends on when I get there. I will be there until it closes, basically. 
Why does this seem so radical? <laughs> this is part of the reason I'm so interested in, in the idea that time is money. That idea goes all the way back, you know, as I learned from the colonization of time book, not only to industrialism, but to honestly like puritanism and this idea that it's immoral to waste time. Sort of like you have a bank of time that you were given. And if you don't produce something with that time, then you're kind of wasting it. And it's similar to wasting money. I sometimes think, you know, on the days that I wander around and do quote unquote nothing, it sometimes unfortunately feels expensive. And so I think that's a pretty deep-seated thing. It's kind of hard to get around. So the, the situation that we're in right now, I think, is just that same problem taken to a new level by how granular it's become, how it's not even some time is money. It's like all time is money. Even time that you're sleeping is potentially money. It's this kind of inability to even like conceive of off time or this idea that every moment that you spend should be sort of, you should have something to show for it. I think it's telling that even leisure time now is something that we package. I mean, not everyone, right? But it's pretty common on Instagram to frame your life experiences in a certain way, sort of like a product that then gets ratings in the form of likes. So there's this kind of constant expression, externalization, and this idea of yourself as a producing body. A lot of the most meaningful moments in my life, or the most productive in the sense that I consider productive, have been in off time. So, <laughs> yeah, last week I went on a hike on one of my favorite trails and it happens to not have cell reception. It's also not very well known, so I don't tend to see a lot of people on it. And... I honestly struggled to even describe it to myself in my own journal. I was technically gone for six hours, but it felt like three or four days. And I just saw so much that it really made an argument for the idea that I sort of believe in that not, not only is time not money, not all time is the same. I quote John Muir in the book saying, longest is the life that contains the highest amount of time-effacing enjoyment, something like that. Basically, like, your life, that's the longest life, is the one that has the most moments like that. So for me, that's why that matters, or that's why it's a problem to not be able to access off-time or even the idea of off-time, is that for me personally, that kind of time is when I'm reminded that I'm alive. <laughs> it's really important for me, and it can't be expressed not only on social media, but it can barely even be expressed at all. And I think that, you know, I'm fine with that. <laughs> the question of technology comes to mind. You're not, you're not anti-technology, right? You had your phone with you on this walk? I did have my phone with me a lot on that hike because I was using that app, iNaturalist. Although I didn't have cell reception, so I wasn't finding out what the plants were at the moment. I had to wait until I got home, but... Because it's spring, there were a lot of wildflowers. And just in general, when things are flowering, that's kind of when you get to find out what they are because there are a lot of plants that look the same otherwise. They're not the same, but it's hard for an app like iNaturalist to just use the information of like a bunch of leaves. And so I actually ran out of space on my phone. I mean, that's also because I'm really bad about deleting things off my phone. But I ran out of space because I took so many photos of plants to then later put into this app. And I learned 10 or 15 new species just on that one hike. 
I also like, <laughs> because I was running out of space, but I, I didn't know when I was going to be back. So I really needed to take these photos. I ended up deleting almost everything off my phone. Like I deleted Instagram. I deleted Spotify. <laughs> what else? Facebook. I just was like, no, I don't need any of these things. I just need to know what this plant is. <laughs> I think I enjoy uses of technology that are just tools for observation. I mean, the other quote unquote technology I had with me was binoculars. And it's similar in that it's giving me, it's aiding my human vision. And I'm really, really glad that I had them because again, this is one of those things that doesn't sound that amazing when I describe it, but I saw this, it's a bird called a vireo and it's, I haven't seen them very often. And it's also just really hard to see birds in the forest because it's just a lot of redwoods and it's just not easy to spot them. And I saw one and it was feeding its baby. <laughs> you just have to take my word for it that a vireo is already like an extremely painfully cute bird. So a baby one is kind of too much to handle. When I saw that bird and its baby, I, I don't really know where I went. I was just, I mean, I basically stood there until they left because I was pretty sure I would never see anything like that ever again. And I was so focused on them and I was trying to memorize every detail and I was also just so flabbergasted by even having seen them at all and oddly enough if you asked me when did you feel the most yourself it would probably be a moment like that but it's really weird because actually in the moment it's like I was replaced with these two birds or something like I was so outwardly focused that my ego self was not even present and so I think that's a really interesting thing that happens with things like listening and observation where you're so focused outward that the kind of dense ego sense of the self just completely disappears. But it's still you. That is still an experience of the self. And there's no way I would have seen that without binoculars. I think there are moments where technology in some way can help you see something that you just wouldn't see otherwise, and that gives you more access to the present. You make a connection between capitalism and loneliness in the book. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, I think that there's a really strong connection between capitalism and obviously ideas of competition and especially individualized competition. It's something, you know, I remember even from high school. Honestly, I went to high school in Cupertino and a lot of students there were kind of it's a public high school, but it has a really high college acceptance rate. And I recently was going back through old journals and I was really struck by how much there was this model of individual excellence, test scores, evaluations, performance, right? And not as much, I don't know, like collaborative work or work where you get surprised by something or these less goal-driven kind of activities. And now, you know, I'm an art instructor and I'm at Stanford and I'm seeing it from the other end where I see my students having come out of things like that. And Stanford itself is a pretty competitive atmosphere. So I think that there is something about that kind of atmosphere that encourages viewing oneself as a product or one's life as a product. And once you start seeing things that way, it's possible to optimize that product. So doing everything in order to optimize oneself, that that becomes the only criteria for deciding whether or not to do something. 
And it's just such a narrow understanding of the self. I think it cuts off all of these other sources of meaning that you could get. It certainly doesn't bode super well for relationships with other people because in a super hyper-competitive situation, it's very much every man for himself. And it's very much like, what do I need to make myself better? And that's the end of the story. And it seems, you know, I lived in San Francisco before Oakland. Not that you don't see this in Oakland too, but I just feel like there was a personality type where you have someone who's hell-bent on self-improvement and still miserable and just thinks that they're just not doing a good enough job. And so they get really obsessed with this self-improvement because all of their feeling of being miserable, they chalk up to not doing a good enough job. And I just, I would see that and I would, you know, it's like, oh, the answer is so simple. If you just walked sideways, if you just get off the ladder or just look around, it's really not as difficult. It doesn't need to be that difficult. I mean, we're not here alone. (laughs) So, you know, when I say look around, I mean, at other people, but also at where you are and that non-human, the non-human inhabitants of where you are. I have that description in the book of being in the Rose Garden and reading about species loneliness for the first time, which is this term that describes the loneliness that humans feel not being connected to other species. And that at the moment that I read that, I kind of looked over at this song sparrow There's lots of song sparrows in the Rose Garden and that I looked at it in a different way because of that. I mean, I was already a bird enthusiast, but I think there's a really big difference between seeing, it's like you can see, okay, there's just birds or you can see there's specific birds or you can see beings with agency that have their own understanding of the reality that you also have an understanding of, you know? And I think to me, that is the most unlonely feeling. Thank you to Jenny O'Dell for spending time with us. Please check out her book, How to Do Nothing. And thanks also to our other guests, Manoush Zomorodi, Priya Parker, and David White. I hope you liked this series. If you did or didn't, please tell me. You can email me at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Lonely Podcast, or you can find me on the Lonely Hours Facebook page. And sign up for our newsletter at thelonelyhour.com. The regular show will be back in the near future, and that newsletter is the best way to hear about new episodes. That's it for now. Until we find our next stories to share with you, please enjoy yourself. This episode was produced by me, Julia Bainbridge, and mixed and sound designed by Keith J. Nelson.